Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Stepping in for Sean Spear today, our editor-at-large, to host this Hub Dialogue. Our guest today is a renowned Columbia law professor, financial markets expert, and the author of a big new book called Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. In a moment, you'll hear the voice of Catherine Judge, the author, speaking with me about how our economy is being transformed by middle men and a few middle women, too, and why this is both a challenge for the future of capitalism, but also an opportunity to rethink our communities, rethink many of the markets that we rely on, and rethink how big corporations are doing business. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Catherine Judge, the author of Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Catherine, so many issues and ideas that I want to unpack with you. But first, just thank you for coming on the Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's go to basics. You're writing about something you've called and others have identified as a middleman economy. Explain to us what this is and why you're have a view that it's something unique and important that demands our attention. Yeah. So when I'm talking about the middleman economy, my focus is on two phenomena that really feed off each other. One is the growth of these outsized intermediaries, these outsized middlemen in so many different uh, aspects of our economy. So in retail, we have Amazon and Walmart. In finance, we have these incredibly large banks, these incredibly large mutual funds. In food, we have middlemen like Cargill. And part of what we've seen is as these intermediaries have grown in scale and grown in power, uh, that has actually led to longer and more complex supply chains. And the two have fed off of each other because these long supply chains seem to create short-term efficiencies. And the the bigger the intermediary, the the more you can justify these small efforts from additional uh, short-term games from doling out kind of like one step in the process to whoever can do it most cheaply. So we've seen this simultaneous rise of these very long and complicated supply chains, facilitating the production of goods and the flow of funds, and these very large and and powerful intermediaries. And the middleman economy is the way the two feed off each other. And the core idea is just this has made our lives incredibly easy, provided unbelievable conveniences. Uh, It's really allowed uh, goods to be far cheaper than they otherwise would. Investing is easier, access to credit is easier. Uh, but there's a lot of long-term costs. Uh, we're seeing it right now in the supply chain fragility. We saw it in 07 and 08 when the securitization chains really broke down. Uh, and we're also seeing it now as people want to know something not only about the good, but about the people and the places affected by the production or affected by their investments. And the opacity created by these chains makes that hard to know. So a lot of benefits, some meaningful drawbacks, and it's helping us to kind of focus in on the trade-offs that we might not have realized that we were making either individually or kind of collectively. Okay, let's talk about uh, some of those trade-offs. There are many, and you've just mentioned, obviously, the biggest one, convenience, that being what you get in turn for the middleman interjecting him or herself uh, between you and the goods and services you want. Uh, It could be, uh, obviously, the centralization of power uh, that these middlemen have in our economy, the effects that that has on us, maybe that we don't realize in terms of higher prices or the sourcing of goods and services that may not meet with our 
ethical needs or demands. So, Catherine, give us a sense of where you think there's the most friction and distortion in our economy, in our society, in our day-to-day lives in terms of the impact of these middlemen, these middle women, and the economy that they control on our society. Yeah, so I think that there is a number and it varies. One of the important things that the book really draws out that I explore and direct as I look at the specific rise of the middleman economy in a lot of sectors is that very often in the near term, there's incredible gains. And part of the challenge, though, is middlemen come in, they build this incredible infrastructure. You know, the real estate agents created the multiple listing service, particularly before the Internet. It allowed buyers and sellers to see homes. You know, Amazon has this very user-friendly platform, incredible fulfillment. So they're coming in, they're providing real value. But we see over time is their control over that critical infrastructure, the expertise they develop, the relationships that they develop allows them to meaningfully contort how the market evolves. It allows them to change and influence regulation. So they're changing the rules for the game in ways that protect what they're doing. Uh, and it also allows them to, to take a bigger cut over time and oftentimes block kind of innovations that could reduce their power. So part of the challenge is like, first of all, drawing attention to this allows us to stand individually. Like, where are we making decisions that don't suit us? Because intermediaries and the middlemen that we deal with are just so good at understanding all of our little behavioral biases, how do they exploit that, and how can taking a step back kind of help us to live a better life for ourselves? But part of it is also understanding kind of the structures and the way the structures create power. So where we actually need innovation and better policymaking to actually restore meaningful choice and just a healthier balance of power. So part of what you're describing here, Catherine, sounds like in many ways uh, inherent features of capitalism where we know there are tendencies towards oligarchy, monopoly. Uh, let's face it, businesses love uh, when there's less competition and they can extract higher profits as a result. Uh, you also think the Internet, though, has played a key role here as an accelerator of the middleman economy. That might be counterintuitive for many of us because we tend to think that the – Internet is a disaggregator, that it encourages the rise of smaller, more disruptive groups and business ideas. So explain to us a little bit more about why you think uh, the Internet is a factor that's accelerating, not impeding the middleman economy. Yeah, so a couple of things there. One, going back to the Internet, I mean, what's really interesting about the Internet and that I try to draw out is it simultaneously has created the opportunity for bigger players to come in and actually increase their size and power. But it has also created an environment where there is the possibility of disruption. So, you know, originally we had the Internet and we had all these idealistic voices. You know, you had Bill Gates early on saying, all right, we're no longer going to need middlemen. Everybody's going to go direct because a lot of the role of middlemen is to help us just overcome the informational challenges of finding one another when the provider of goods and the, the buyer are far apart. And so the internet has allowed us to, to facilitate a possibility of connections without the aid of the big middlemen. And we see that with eBay, we see that with Etsy, we see that with Shopify and the way it helps small businesses. And so there are a lot of ways you can now connect. But the challenge today is Amazon also used an incredible amount of data and incredible IT, IT to create 
this really great platform where it feels really great, where every time you log in, you have this little store that's customized based on your history, but also the wealth of data they have about the buying habits of other people who shop like you. So now the typical consumer who regularly shops online, when they're logging in to start shopping, they're not starting at Google. They're going straight to Amazon. And, and there's a, a value in that, but then that changes over time. So for Amazon, just as an example, we now have recent surveys showing a number of people feel guilty when they shop there. They want to shop elsewhere, but they have a hard time doing so. And similarly, when you're looking at the seller side, uh, the fees that you're paying every time you buy a good on Amazon, the amount that's going to that third-party seller relative to the amount that's going to Amazon has shifted every single year for the last seven to eight years with a bigger and bigger portion of that cut going to Amazon. So part of what we're seeing here is this, this weird pivot point of this, this technology that's coming in. And capitalism, I think, never operates in a vacuum. <laughs> You know, it, it, it operates based on the rules of the game that are set up, but also the the way the players involved help to shape those rules and shape that format. And they're creating the structures that we interact with. So part of what we're seeing right now is there's more opportunities for direct connection, including direct connections that actually, you know, span national borders. And yet there is also simultaneously, as a result of the wealth of data that's available, and the dynamics of, you know, what economists like to call these two-sided markets, where buyers attract sellers and sellers attract buyers, a pattern through which we've had the largest middlemen really growing in size and power and influence. You know the other argument, you must hear it all the time, and that's that there are efficiency games, there are trade-offs, you know, that come with the middleman economy. Uh, yes, but at the end of the day, what really matters is price. <laughs> well, I seem to remember Walmart's slogan, the lowest price is the law. So if we have these big businesses, um, these powerful middlemen in our economy, um, why isn't it right to acknowledge that they are delivering to us goods and services at a lower cost? We might not be entirely happy with the sourcing. We might not be entirely happy with their pricing power or the extent to which they may function as duopolies, oligopolies, you name it. But at the end of the day, they're delivering a higher standard of living by virtue of furnishing people with goods and services on a mass scale, again, at significantly lower prices than if they were not acting in the marketplace. Yeah. So three things on that. One, to, up to a degree, some of that is certainly true. And that's the reason the goal in the book is not to get rid of any of these systems, but to rebalance the power so there's more meaningful choice. Two, when you're talking about the quality of life that people enjoy as a result of that, most people right now are thinking about consumer welfare. What is it on paper we're actually able to consume as a result of the money that we have to spend? And now we can buy more. The challenge is most of us are not just consumers. We play a lot of other roles in our lives. And this has played a meaningful role shifting kind of the nature of work that's available and where that work is available. So if we think about Amazon and Walmart, uh, they're not only the two biggest revenue producers in the United States, they're the two biggest employers. So we have a lot more people working for middlemen and a lot fewer people working actually as creators because those jobs have very often gone abroad as a result of the system. And the last point I would make, part of what the book tries to explore is this core tension 
between the decisions we make and our long-term happiness and well-being. And part of what we're seeing right now in the United States, for example, and I expect this is also true in Canada, is we have a loneliness epidemic that's almost in par with the obesity epidemic in terms of morbidity and mortality outcomes. And so part of what we're seeing is the way we're getting everything we want, but we're able to do it in a very isolated way that seems convenient, that seems great, but sometimes actually forcing ourselves out of our comfort zones to create some of these connections. And again, it's not doing it all of the time, but once in a while can help to build some of those casual relationships that can also be part of what makes a life meaningful. So there's a lot there, but the what, what direct explores are all of these different avenues that, that maybe we've gotten slightly out of whack. Well, let's talk about some examples because I, I think it really helps people to think through in more practical, real-world terms what the middleman economy is. So I want you to imagine, let's say, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to middlemen. Uh, maybe you could give us an example of each so we get a sense of the spectrum of these businesses because you're not against middlemen. You do think there are some genuinely innovative things that they're doing, new ways that they're delivering services. And there is the potential here for a middleman economy to be repackaged, refurnished, repositioned in, in ways that is beneficial to society, that advances the needs of our communities, and maybe at the deepest level advances some of our most carefully held values. So look, talk to us about that spectrum, the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to middlemen companies. Yeah, so I like the the framing. So like starting with a good, again, the middlemen are those actors who are just helping us overcome all the information challenges, all the logistical challenges, separating us from the goods that we want or, you know, savers and, and, and entrepreneurs who, who need a little cash. And I think that they play a critical role in a whole variety of areas of our economy. And one of the core ideas that the book draws out is to understand which middlemen to trust and how much to trust them. It's helpful to just think a little bit about what their incentives are, what their business model is. So if we think about a lot of small local retailers, really they depend on long-term relationships and being trusted by those customers that they're serving and word of mouth so people really are willing to continue to go there. So oftentimes there's a, a meaningful positive correlation uh, between their long-term viability as a business and actually really serving customers' needs in a long-term way. So that can play a really great role. Um, and we also have these great intermediaries that are propping up, creating markets for secondhand goods in, in an environment where we're more concerned about climate impact, you know, whether it's eBay or the real real for clothes, you know, part of what intermediaries do is help people connect. And so I think like these incredibly effective online marketplaces for, for secondhand goods have also been like an incredible area of innovation. And you also have platforms that are kind of middlemen light <laughs> that are helping people connect but doing so in a way where there's still transparency, there's still connection, and there's still accountability. So there's all kinds of, of great middlemen and also middlemen who are kind of neutral. For the bad and the ugly, uh, again, here I would look kind of like, what are the long-term consequences? And so one thing I'll talk about is when they're using their power in bad ways, and the other is just kind of the opacity that comes from this. So one, in terms of power, you know, real estate agents, great connectors, like they really came up helping people buy and sell homes, but the internet should meaningfully reduce kind of 
the need for their services. You can just do a lot more today online than you used to be able to. In the United States, but not so much actually, in Canada or the UK or Australia, we still have an incredibly expensive full-service real estate model where people are paying 5%, sometimes 6% total on the value of their homes. And there is, if you look at the history of how they've managed to entrench themselves, they've used their control over this critical infrastructure uh, and incredibly effective lobbying and kind of these norms of both cooperation with each other, but also refusal to cooperate with people who are being more innovative to really entrench this system so it's very hard for individuals to opt out. And part of the concern there is not that this is specific to real estate, but this is what happens generally, which is why, going back to your earlier question about capitalism, why we have to be a little more worried when you have outside power with intermediaries than with others, because they're able to kind of perpetuate their, their, their role in particularly troubling ways. And the, the ugly two things, one are those hidden sources of fragility, is that you're getting oftentimes very short-term games, but maybe we're actually paying too little in price because that price doesn't actually cover the cost of building a resilient system. So when people actually need baby formula, when they need goods, suddenly their access is limited. So I would say, yes, we want low prices, but we also need a resilient system when we're talking about fundamental goods. And those were the failures that we saw in 07 or 08 in finance. Those are the failures we're seeing in supply chains now. So I'd actually say a little bit of rebalancing is part of what we need. And the length and the complexity of the chains contributed to this kind of like outsized dysfunction. And we can talk about it later if you want, but then there's also just the question of like accountability. Like what happens when people care about more than just the good and they actually care about the impact on the world and other people. Okay, let's shift gears here and pick up on one more thing you mentioned that fascinates me, Catherine. Uh, you, when you think of the effects of uh, middlemen, uh, especially in the last period of time, they may have had a direct bearing on the struggles that advanced economies are having with inflation, particularly how central banks and governments may have misunderstood the threat of inflation. Let's hear more from you on that topic. Yeah, so a lot of it is the challenge of what becomes unknown and not easily knowable as a result of the complexity of the ecosystem that these long chains create. So if you want to understand kind of the impact of what central banks can know and don't know, uh, we can actually even rewind to 2007 and 2008, which I think provides a very helpful parallel in unappreciated ways for what we're facing right now. So actually, the, the origins of the financial crisis were not inside of banks. It was weaknesses in these long securitization chains and the quality of some of the mortgages. But the subprime mortgages that were underperforming were a really small part of the overall mortgage market. And most of the other mortgages in time performed pretty well. So the actual losses that drove the crisis were sufficiently modest that they should have been able to be absorbed. The challenge is, starting in you know, August 2007, over a year before the failure of Lehman Brothers and AIG and all of the explosive developments, you know, the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, was sitting around and they say, look, like liquidity is going bad. We're suddenly seeing dysfunction in all of these different markets that we didn't think were related to one another. And a core challenge is it used to be all of the loans were on bank balance sheets. So we knew where the problems were. But now with securitization and originate to distribute, and it wasn't just securitization, there's layers of securitization feeding in to other types of innovative financial products. We don't know where the risks are. 
And they were saying this in the fall of 2007, and yet it was a full year until, we, again, we had the explosions in 2008. But because the system had gotten so complex, they couldn't figure out where the problems were and kind of operate strategically to, to address those problems in a, in a proportionate way or to understand kind of quite the full magnitude of what might go wrong. And similarly, if we kind of rewind to the early stages of, of the current inflationary bout, we saw Fed Chair Powell and others saying, yes, we're seeing supply chain problems, but they're going to be transitory. So yes, prices are going up, they're going up faster than we expected, but that's gonna self-correct. And again, there's this assumption, going back to your earlier point, markets self-correct, right? So if we see dysfunction, markets are self-correcting. As long as we provide enough liquidity, we provide enough time, there's gonna be self-correction. But the challenge is you have this incredibly long chain, which is really a web as it gets built up. And all of the little players have only a little bit of information. They know who they're exposed to and they understand their risk exposures, but they don't all understand all the risk exposures of all the other parties that they are uh, potentially exposed to indirectly through the complexity of the system. So once you have a shock to the system, rather than just recalibrating in light of that bad news, there's suddenly all these questions over like, well, what am I exposed to? Or how bad is it going to get? And then you suddenly have everybody really looking out for themselves, sometimes panicking, but even shy of panicking, potentially sending like false signs over like what they need or what they can do as a way of trying to figure out like, like let's look out for ourselves. And when you have a complex interdependent system, that means that shock in the absence of really new credible information about how those risks are allocated is going to lead to more and more dysfunction in ways that build on itself. And so a, a core challenge has just been, the, the, I think, the failure of policymakers to understand the nature of the fragility and the way that the dysfunction is going to build, and also the, the opacity that meant so they couldn't go in and kind of understand, oh, like, like here's, like, at least within the case scenarios, something that's probable. So we've had additional shocks. The pandemic was a significant shock. You know, the invasion of Ukraine was a significant shock. We had a fundamentally fragile system that was fragile and created these massive information gaps, uh, I think, in ways that were preventable and hadn't been adequately addressed ahead of time. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. What's your advice, say, for these big three groups? And let's start with corporations first, because they're in the middle of this. Many of them are middle men, middle women embracing their role as brokers, powerful brokers, nodal points uh, in our economy. Others maybe uh, don't like to advertise that fact. They're kind of taking advantage of that middleman status and don't want us really to understand their pricing power or how they're distorting free markets. So let's start with corporations. Um, get your views on their future in the middleman economy, and then we'll move on to gov what government and consumers could or should do with your thesis about our economy today. 
Yes, I think corporations are very broad, right? I think private industry is both part of the problem and has already been a huge part of the solution. So I think on a self-interested way, part of what's going to be really helpful for corporate leaders in understanding these dynamics, going back to what we were just talking about, is you understand your own risk exposures, but also you don't know about potential risk exposures in a different way. So if we're in an environment where you think there's high geopolitical risk, there might be various climate-related risks, and there's other kind of disruptions that could occur, understanding that you might have made a bunch of decisions, because in the short run, they seem to be easier to create cost savings, but where there might be embedded complexity or risks that you haven't adequately taken into account, understanding this bigger picture can help you understand where should we go in and make different changes if we want to build up more resilience. And also going back to the real estate, understanding that some of the middlemen you've come to rely on might be what you've been doing for a while, but maybe there's innovations out there that could allow you to forego their services and save yourself some real money in ways that you don't appreciate. So it's reevaluating both on the supply side, but also in your relationship with customers. Like, what is it you don't know? And what is it? How are you like delayed? We're seeing a lot of like, you know, firms that have just made bad calls regarding what their customers wanted. But sometimes it wasn't that that direct relationship there. So understanding the way intermediation can make things easier, can enable efficiencies, but also have drawbacks in terms of, you know, connection, communication, information flows, and, and potential sources of fragility. And so revisiting in a more conscious way kind of the choices you've made. And then again, just separately, a lot of great firms are coming in and innovating, right? They're like, we're seeing direct-to-consumer and Shopify and all of these other kind of new innovations that effectively are saying, we think the system is broken. (laughs) We think that there are people who actually care about the impact of what they're consuming on the environment or on other people. And as a practical matter, today's chains are so long and complex that no certification scheme is actually going to provide consumers the information that they want. So we need to start from the ground up, build a shorter, more accountable, more transparent supply chain, build a way of connecting uh, companies and consumers. And like that can be part of trying to, to create an alternative ecosystem, again, which just creates that, that healthy level of competition and, and meaningful choice for, for all of the players involved. So more than a century ago, uh, we know that Teddy Roosevelt broke up the big monopolies, the monopolies of oil and steel. And many people look back in that period and say, well, that was an event that in no small way unleashed a wave of productivity and growth and dynamism in the American economy. In advanced economies generally, we are now seeing concentrations of corporate wealth and power within broad swaths of the new key players of the 21st century, I'm thinking most notably Silicon Valley. Is deregulation really the key here to breaking down the, the new syndicates, the new middlemen companies that are now being built up within the industries of the 21st century? Or are there other policy changes that we should be thinking about? So I think there's a variety of tools. One is we do need to have healthy enforcement of competition policy and antitrust. It's existed on the books for a long time. It's gotten more rigid and more narrow in practice, taking a more dynamic view of the economy and of market share and of influence and power, I think is part of what's going on right now, reinvigorating that field in healthy and critical ways. I think alongside that, there's more. And then then there's policymakers just not being part of the problem. And part of what Direct really explores are the ways that middlemen have used their influence 
through lobbying and through expertise. So sometimes it's people who are captured, but sometimes it's just people don't know any better and they're scared. And so it goes through the ways in so many different sectors, middlemen have used their influence to push for laws that really entrench an outdated and self-serving system. So, you know, don't be part of the problem. And the last is really thinking more creatively and proactively about what we can do from the ground up to create the infrastructure that allows people to opt out of a dominant system. You know, we've heard, like there's farmers markets all over the place, but there's usually public space that is set aside for the farmers market. Setting aside that space matters. Uh, if we think about the U.S. Postal Service or kind of postal services in other countries, you know, oftentimes right now the focus is on right, like let's make sure that like they're actually financially viable. And I actually think that's the wrong focus. We should certainly make sure they're incredibly well run. <laughs> we don't want there to be wastefulness and inefficiency in how they're operating. On the other hand, if we are worried that outsized power could actually have crippling effects on the health of the overall economy and limit the viability of small businesses, limit consumer choice, then finding ways to actually speed up rather than slow down as we currently are postal service and provide potentially subsidized rate to smaller players can make it so people can, you know, go off Amazon and wait you know, two or three days, as opposed to now they've just shifted and said, oh, for some packages, four or five days will still be on time, even for first class. So, so try and figure out how can we provide that infrastructure, not to pick winners and losers, but to ensure there's kind of ongoing healthy competition. Okay, moving on to the consumer and the individual, what choices can be made? Because the relationships do seem incredibly asymmetric. Amazon has all my data. I have very little information on Amazon. Certainly, I know nothing about Facebook or Google's algorithm. They're opaque to me. So how do we reassert ourselves as arbiters, as participants in the economy, as agents of our own kind of economic destiny, as opposed to simply accepting, I guess, the, the power of middlemen, which is real? and cannot be ignored. Yeah, and I think that really is the aim. I mean, the aim over time is not to destroy any of the systems we have in place, but to rebalance so more of the power lies with creators and consumers and a little less of the power lies with the middlemen. So, so one of the things the book really explores is to say like, look, we live in this incredibly heavily intermediated world right now, and here's everything that you're not seeing about the impact of your consumption. And part of what the challenge we face today is it's very easy to discount that which you do not see. So suddenly there's all of these adverse consequences actually for the well-being of people on the planet that are feeding like my family and the clothes that we wear in ways that I hadn't been aware of because it's systematically blinded to me. So I think a cornerstone of a better balance starts with just once in a while figuring out where can you actually go direct to a maker? You know, can you, is there a farm stand that you can go to or, a far, you know, a farmer's market? Or if you hate to cook, like, don't do that. Like, maybe instead for you, it's like going on Etsy and occasionally shopping there with somebody who actually is. And there's small and large production there now. Uh, a small production maker. So figuring out kind of where are a couple of areas of your life where going direct might take a little more work, but might also bring rewards in terms of supporting your local community, creating new types of connections. And that just serves to remind us in this way that we've been dulled to of the impact of our actions on others. 
And then in other areas, a lot of it is about trying to figure out, well, where is there like a slightly shorter supply chain in ways that could create kind of more accountability and, and that are more consistent with my values. And so part of it is just being honest. And the book goes through a lot of the evidence of the way a lot of claims made, you know, in an ESG investment fund oftentimes aren't living up to the promises they're making. And so it's kind of forcing us to make some of those harder decisions and be more honest about the trade-offs. But the goal is not to kind of abandon the life that all of us have come to know, but start to cultivate more meaning and more connection and a better balance by bringing just greater awareness to the fact that it's not only what we buy or in what we invest, but through whom we are buying and through whom we are investing that really changes the nature of the goods that we're bringing into our lives and the, the ripple effects oftentimes in the broader world of those decisions. This is also partly about capital remaining in local communities, i.e., you know, how do we make sure that the wealth of our own economic activity stays in the locales where we live and work as opposed to being expropriated and sent all around the world? If we you know, think of the hollowing out of our main streets, our high streets across a lot of the advanced economies today. I think many of us rightly kind of cite middlemen and middlemen companies as, you know, the the catalyst for these changes that are uncomfortable, uh, destabilizing and impacting our, our social fabric in in very real ways. So how could we reimagine our economy to lend new strength and vitality to our own local communities? I think that's up for us to decide. And so really what we, we see is I think we're at a pivot point. On the one hand, we are seeing all of the costs of the current system coming into light. We're seeing these supply chain fragilities that are becoming manifest in ways that are incredibly disruptive to the health of the economy and to individual lives. We're seeing that as people care more about the impact of their purchases and their investments, that they're not actually able to get that in the current system. And so there's this, this sense of disconnect between the values many people hold and the outcomes that we're seeing. And part of the book says globalization matters and scale matters, but intermediation design is really kind of part of what we need to think about. And so there is the possibility that like through technology, through different decisions, and significantly through better policymaking, because you really do... Uh, it's not the individual opting out bears too great of a cost for that to be. That's part of the the shift, but it's not going to be all of it. But through new types of innovation and through policymaking that really takes these these dynamics seriously, building up an alternative ecosystem, which doesn't try to destroy what we have right now, but is sufficiently robust that, that we do have more of that meaningful choice. And in the ability to opt out, that in and of itself undermines a lot of the opportunism and kind of self-serving behavior in the ways that are most destructive and costly that the current system potentially allows and enables. So there is the possibility of a healthier, but I will say also, we, I see a lot of signs of the opposite. I mean, I think it's just right now so easy to fall into the most familiar patterns <laughs> And as you said, there's certain big actors, they have all our data, they're the easiest ones, they're putting a huge amount into lobbying, a huge amount into protecting their power. And there's a lot to be said for the concern 
that the status quo doesn't just get maintained, but actually we see a continued growth of the outside power. So I, I think we're really at a pivot point of more of the same or consciously making more meaningful investments uh, and realizing, you know, it took decades to get here. It's going to take decades to change of kind of like, how do we create more meaningful choice and, and a healthier balance? So common question, is there a country, a place in the world that you think is starting to strike a better balance between the consumer and uh, the middleman denominated economy? Europe certainly has tried to do some th things in terms of regulation, especially of Internet companies. Where would you point us to try to search out uh, some of the best practices in terms of reforming economic policy? You know, I think we see it all over the world in pockets. I think when you open your eyes, it is already everywhere, right? I mean, I remember working in part of this book while I was in Taiwan. And one of the things I love about Taiwan is particularly in the South where we were, there's just so many of these like small little food stands and small little creators and you're interacting and you oftentimes are like, you know, it's like the front of their house and you see their families. So like transparency, like you know where that money's going, right? Like you don't want to cut them short because you see the impact in these very concrete ways. And they're still like, I mean, they're an incredible producer of semiconductors. So it's an incredibly productive country, but where they're still incredibly thriving small businesses uh, and where that is a lot of the, the ecosystem. But I think we see that throughout small parts of the United States and Canada and, and in Europe. I mean, there's a lot of areas where actually still oftentimes smaller areas, but not only smaller areas, where we see some of those, those signs that are there. And I'd say some of the areas of hope are not within a particular jurisdiction, but also span jurisdictions. I mean, we still live in a world where wealth is so far from equally distributed that if all of the move to direct is more local, then you could just exacerbate some of the existing inequalities. So we have these really innovative entrepreneurs who are using their own kind of backgrounds that oftentimes span different parts of the world to create companies where consumers in North America or Europe and buy shea butters, you know, and actually see like the way that the women are, are laboring uh, to crack the nuts and to produce the, the shea that goes into them. And then really providing those women kind of support that they need. We're seeing it with spices from India. So we have these, these also these kind of new things coming up that are not just about in one place, but like, let's figure out how to create community and bridges that are new. Wow. That's a really key point to think about. Um, how technology can be used for the good, as you say, uh, it can allow you to go direct uh, beyond the global to the local and, and maintain these very human connections to the people that are providing the goods and services that you want. And you could even take that further, as you said, to lifting people and groups out of poverty by taking that extra time, making that extra effort to source your products from groups, uh, organizations that, you know, resonate in real ways with your own values, your own ethics. Catherine Judge, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, Hub Dialogue listeners, that is a wrap for this, our latest Hub Dialogue. You've been listening to my interview with Catherine Judge, the author of the new best-selling book, Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. We always love your feedback and insights. Please uh, send us an email to the hub. Visit our website, 
thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis and insights via our Hub Dialogues. You'll find multiple Hub Dialogues every week exploring the big issues and ideas of our time. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, standing in for Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Let's do this all again soon.